6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 20 through 22. He did very abominably in following idols, according to all the things which the Amorites did, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes, and he put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went softly. So, this, uh, it, 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 I think there was probably sincere repentance here. It doesn't quite end that way. He's going to do some other things, but still, it looks like he, it, it got to him, it would seem. Verse 28, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring evil, bring the evil in his days. But in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Okay, we're down to the last chapter in the book of First Kings. And there it continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. And it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now, uh, Jehoshaphat's one of the good guys, by the way. See, this, this is about fourth, for about three years after the battle of Aphek that we read about in verse chapter 20, there's no war. But now we have Ahab and Ben-Hadad, uh, uh, they uh, will have fought Shalmaneser in the battle of Karkar. That's not in the scripture, but we know from other histories. Ahab decided he needed to retake the important city of Ramoth and Gilead from the Arameans who had taken it from Israel a year earlier. So and the king of Israel said to his servants, Know ye that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, and, be, and we be, be still, and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, that's the king of the south now, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. I think it's a big mistake. He's making an alliance with the north. Uh, see, Ramoth was one of the chief cities in the tribe of Gad, about 28 miles east of the Jordan, about 15 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. It's almost directly across from Jezreel, in effect. So he needed, in order to make an army large enough, he wanted the king of the south, king of Judah, to ally with him. It probably made sense for political reasons, but he should not have done so for spiritual reasons. He was a godly king faithful to the Lord, Jehoshaphat was. So what's happened that should cause a good king to make an alliance with a king as wicked as Ahab? Why should he fraternize with a natural enemy? It's abnormal, and, and, and it's going to be an unnatural confederacy. And we're, it, 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 uh, see, at this point it seems strange, but we'll find out later that Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, had married Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Can you imagine what the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel might be like? And so Jehoshaphat's son is going to... Um, Marry her, Athaliah, and she is going to be bad news. Here's a case of a, a boy with a godly heritage married with a, to, to a girl with a very wicked one. And you can imagine what that came out to be. Um, many, many people don't know there was a queen of Judah, the southern kingdom, for a brief while. When Athaliah takes over for a short while before she's done away with. And, uh, 
They always say when a believer and unbeliever get married, you can always be sure that the believer is going to have trouble. As J. Vernon McGee likes to put it, when you marry a child of the devil, your father-in-law sees to it that you'll have trouble. (laughs) Anyway, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. The king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. Said, remember, Ahab's not godly, but Jehoshaphat is. But he's his partner, so he says he wants you to inquire to the prophets. So Ahab reluctantly agrees. And king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, quite a bunch. And said unto them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they said, Go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now somehow in the tone of this, Jehoshaphat, you know, is not convinced. You know, he, he told Jehab, let's call the prophets, so he calls his, his rubber stamp guys in, you know, and, yeah, 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 let's do that. Jehoshaphat says, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, is there not a prophet of the Lord besides that we might inquire of him? Jehoshaphat wants better counsel. The king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, well, there is one man, Micaiah. That's another spelling of Micah, but it's not to be confused with a Micah. That's a, that, a, a different guy. This is Micaiah, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good, good concerning me, but evil. <laughs> I love this. You see, I don't like him, because he never says anything good about me. <laughs> I like him already, right? <laughs> but I hate him. He doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Jehoshaphat said, well, let not the king say so. And the king of Israel called an officer and said, hasten hither, Micaiah, uh, the son of Imlah. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, sat each on his throne, having put on their robes in a void place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. <laughs> and Zedekiah, the son of Kenah, nah, that's not the Zedekiah, anyway, that's another, uh, made him horns of iron, and said, Thus saith the Lord, well, the, with these thou shalt push the Syrians until thou hast consumed them. So Zedekiah is just one of these false prophets, and he's, he's made these, brand, you know, these, these, uh, these horns, and he's using it to sort of as a, as a, uh, a prop to make his point that you're going to succeed against the Syrians. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, yeah, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the king's hand. And by this time the messenger that was gone to call Micaiah spake unto him said, saying, Behold now the words of the prophets that he current good unto the king with one mouth. Let thy word, I pray thee, be like the word of one of them, and speak that which is good. See, this messenger is giving Micaiah some advice. You know, he, He's briefing him on what's politically correct to bring up before the king. Be sure you agree with all these other guys, and everything's going to be just fine. I think Micaiah has just about two tablespoons of Elijah in him. He's not going to put up with this. Micaiah said, As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. So he came to the king, and the king said unto Micaiah, Micaiah, shall we go up against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we forbear? <laughs> and he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. Now if you just read the draw text, you say, Gee, what is he saying? You need to understand he's being sarcastic. It's become pretty obvious when we, as we go on that he was saying that with his tongue in his cheek or facetious or what some people would call a, you know, a, a reversion to, uh, to irony, if you will. The king said unto him, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? See, in other words, he can tell by the way he's answering it that he means the opposite. In rhetoric, that would be called irony. You're saying the opposite to make your point, so to speak. And that's not clear from just the translation. It's clear from the context as you watch what he's saying. He was saying, 
that which he knew they wanted to hear, but in such a way that they knew that really wasn't what he meant. The king said, How many times shall I adjure thee that thou shalt tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of the Lord? And then he said, I saw all Israel scattered upon the hills, as sheep that have not a shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of the Israel turned to his partner, turned to Jehoshaphat. Did I not tell thee that he would prophesy no good concerning me but evil? <laughs> then uh, Micaiah goes on. He says, and he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another on that manner. And there came forth a spirit that stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? He said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. But Zedekiah, the son of Kanakah, went near and smote Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way went the Spirit of the Lord from me to speak unto thee? Micaiah said, Behold, thou shalt see in that day when thou shalt go into an inner chamber to hide thyself. See, Micaiah doesn't make any apologies. He's saying, If you don't believe me, just wait and see. It's in effect what he's saying. Now, by the way, scholars get divided as to whether this, this meeting between the Lord and the lying spirit was just a parable or an idiom that Micaiah used to communicate to the king that his prophets were lying spirits. That's, that's one view. There's others that think that this was a portrayal. Uh, anyway, in any case, it was a portrayal that they would all understand. So, so it is what it is. So, see, the time for sarcasm is over. He goes into this whole thing, this vision, and, uh, and uh, elaborates on it. And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and carry him back unto Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with a bread of affliction and with water of affliction until I come in peace. Micaiah said, If thou return at all in peace, the Lord hath not spoken by me. And he said, Hearken, O people, every one of you. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, now, this is kind of another interesting thing. You get the impression that the king of Israel, Ahab, he didn't like what Micaiah said, but he felt that it just might be true. So he goes in disguise himself and convinces Jehoshaphat to wear his regal robes. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle, but thou, but put thou on thy robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. I don't know how he talked Jehoshaphat into doing this stupid maneuver. He's, he, he gets, uh, you know, the king of Syria commanded his thirty and two captains that he had rule over his chariots and said, Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel. So Syria is after, Ben-Hadad is after King Ahab. He said, Don't fight with small or great, only the king of Israel. Of course, king of Israel is in disguise. They're all going to go for the guy with the regal robes, right? came to pass when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, surely it's the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. It came to pass when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture, is the expression. In, there's a, that's the way it's translated in your English. Let me catch up with you uh, in my notes here. I, uh, 
The good news, I'm not following my notes clearly because I bore you with a lot of other irrelevant loose ends, but the word for, the Hebrew for uh, adventure really means in his simplicity. Um, a certain man drew a bow. It's sort of like, it's visualized sort of like at random. And it smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver's chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. Now this whole idea of, of uh, this adventure, in other words, he didn't take specific aim. He just sh- sh- shot blindly, but it struck the right target. And, and uh, it's obviously the judgment of God. I love what J. Vernon McGee, he says this, this was the first guided missile. <laughs> so, uh, see, the man who shot the arrow didn't knowingly aim at that particular uh, situation. It's like a random accident, but there's nothing random in God's kingdom. As you know, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is in the lap of the Lord, it tells us. There are two concepts in mathematics that we cannot find in the physical universe. One is infinity. Whether you're looking at the macrocosm, the fact that the universe is finite, is a great discovery of 20th century science, or in the microcosm, things can't get smaller than a certain unit. That's why it's called quantum physics. There's an indivisible thing. Everything's made up. Length, width, I mean, length, uh, time, matter, energy, all made of indivisible units. So we can't find infinity in the microcosm, macrocosm. The other concept you can't find in the physical universe is randomness. That's what the theory of mathematical theory of chaos is all about. And uh, it's how interesting that uh, we live in a very, very definitive simulation. But I'm getting off the subject. Let's get back here. Um, sorry. The battle increased that day. The king was stayed up in his chariot against the Syrians. He died at evening. Uh, the blood ran out of the wound into the midst of the chariot. There went up a proclamation throughout the host about the going down of the sun, saying, Every man to a city and every man to his own country. So the king died and was brought, brought to Samaria. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked, licked up his blood. This is where Naboth's vineyard was, by the way. And they washed his armor according to the word of the Lord which he spake, and all the rest of the acts of Ahab, and all that he did, and the ivory house which he made, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the, of the king of Israel? And uh, so Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. So that's the end of Ahab. Good riddance. Uh, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in his fourth year of, the, of Ahab, the king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 30 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the uh, daughter of Shilhi. And uh, so the, uh, the uh, it's interesting, uh, there's a lot of archaeological support here, and they found a lot of stuff of Ahab's uh, ivory and all that stuff. I won't bore you with that. That's pretty straightforward stuff. Um, now, Asa, Asa uh, Jehoshaphat's son, began to reign in Judah about 873 B.C. He was a co-regent with his father for a while because he, because of Asa's poor health that continued three years until Asa's death in 870 B.C. when Jehoshaphat became sole ruler. And it was the first instance of co-regency since Solomon ruled. But it's always, it's always the Davidic dynasty in the south, by the way. They have, I think, eight different dynasties in the north, but they have only dynasty of David in the south. Now... Uh, by the way, it turns out, verse 43, that he walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He turned not aside from it, doing that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people offered and burnt incense, yet in the high places. And uh, it's interesting that, uh, according to Second Chronicles 17, Jehoshaphat removed the high places. Uh, but apparently because of this, it indicates that he removed it. But when the people restored him, he didn't uh, follow through, again, obliterating a second time. The other kings of Judah that removed the high place were Joash, that's coming, 
Amaziah, Azariah, and Jotham. Um, Ahaz sacrificed the high places, and uh, they were they would ultimately be moved uh, by Hezekiah, rebuilt by Manasseh, and we'll talk about that when we get there, and so forth. And so Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel, and uh, so they had peace with the north. It turns out that Jehoshaphat and Ahab united in a treaty which resulted in peace between Judah and Israel during his reign, but this was another one of his mistakes, because we read in Second Chronicles that Jehu the prophet met with Jehoshaphat as he returned from his visit with Ahab and condemns him for all this, so um, for what it's worth. Anyway, in verse 45, Now all the rest of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he, he warred, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And the remnant of the Sodomites, which remained in the days of his father Asa, he took out of the land. There was then no king in Edom, a deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they went not, for the ships were broken, as in Geber. Then said Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, unto Jehoshaphat, let, thy, let my servants go with thy servants to the ships, but Jehoshaphat would not do that. Good for him. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoram his son reigned in his stead. And Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. And again, this is the northern king. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked to anger the Lord God of Israel according to all that his father had done. Now, um, when you get to the, the, so, so that ends the book of First uh, Kings. A couple of comments that you might find interesting. When you get to the book of Revelation, the Lord dictates seven letters to seven churches. And there's a profound study of those seven churches. Um, they have about at least four levels of meaning. Practical, local, the real churches, the real problems. They also apply to each of us personally. They also apply to all churches broadly. If you understand those seven letters, you can map any church in the idioms of those seven parameters. It's each there's seven report cards. What's interesting, every one of those churches is surprised by the report card. Those that thought they were doing well were not. Those that didn't think they were doing well were. And so that's sobering to really understand that the Lord's report card is a surprise to each one. That should give us pause. But I want to, when you get to chapter two, you get to the church to Thyatira, or it's also called another word for Simiramis. Under the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? And then he always uses a different title. He's a, God uses a different, Lord does a different title for each letter. These things saith the Son of God who hath eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. That's an idiom drawn from chapter one. All these terms are in this, cataloged in chapter one. And they used it as identities all the way through the book. It's all in code. And it's all, all the codes are revealed in the scripture. Then for each of these letters, there's a commendation. I know thy works and thy charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. The last to be more than the first. Then he goes on. He always expresses a concern. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her space to repent for her fornication, she pardoned not. Now Jesus is using the idiom of Jezebel here. Was there really a woman called Jezebel in Thyatira? Might have been. Or is he using it as an idiom or a linkage to the, the, the Old Testament, which, of course, all the believers were familiar with. I suspect he's, he's speaking idiomatically here, but let's move on. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and then that commit, commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. 
So this is one of the seven churches that has an explicit promise that it will be cast into the great tribulation unless they repent. This is a profound verse for many reasons, not the least of which it also implies that if they do repent, they won't go through the great tribulation. Whew, that's interesting. And I will kill their children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he that searcheth the reins of the hearts, and I will give to every one of you according to your works. When we get to Queen Jezebel, as we did in 1 Kings 21, go look at it. King Ahab desires Naboth's vineyard. How does he get Naboth's vineyard? Queen Jezebel arranges an inquisition, false witnesses, condemnation, execution. This characterized, and of course out of this, the, the lands are seized for the king. Does this sound like a particular era in church history? The medieval church. Notorious for the abusive corruption that was associated with the Inquisition. Let's go on here. He says, But I say unto you, in the rest inside of Tyre, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan, it's quite a term, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already hold, hold, hold that which you have already, hold fast till I come. And then he has the promise to the overcomer. Every church, every one of his letters has a little postscript. The first three, the postscript is appended after the closing phrase. This one, it's before the closing phrase. I'll come in. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of potter shall he be broken in shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath in here, let him hear what the Spirit says to seven churches. This is, That's the check phrase that closes the letter. In the last four letters, this check phrase is after the body of the, it, the, the promise of the overcomer is in the body of the letter. Not a postscript. So many people see these letters, among other things, as a profile prophetically. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we have the apostolic church, the Ephesus, the, the, the lost its first love. Smyrna, the persecuted church, the one. We have Pergamus, the married church, where the church marries the world, if you will. Thyatira, the medieval church. Sardis, the denominational church. You have a name li- that you live, but are dead. The missionary church, Philadelphia. And Laodicea, the apostate church. It's interesting, if these letters were in any other order, it would not fit history. But in this particular order, it's a profile of church history. From the papistolic day until the apostate church at the end. Interestingly enough. The first three have, the promises are postscripted. The last four, the promises are in the body of the letter. Plus the last four have another characteristic that's unique to the last four only. They each have explicit references to the second coming of Christ in the, in the body of the letter. And that causes us to model this in a rather interesting way. The medieval church, the Thyatiran church that, that, that it represents, is a, has an explicit promise that they will go into the Great Tribulation. That's kind of interesting. There's one church that is promised explicitly to be, uh, Behold, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole, to try the whole earth. That's the church of Philadelphia. And uh, I'm assuming that the first three have passed away by then. The last four endure till the end. And we have no idea where Sardis and Laodicea go. We know one that doesn't go to the tribulation, one that does, and two that probably determine on the individual basis what, what really happens. But in any case, um, if you also study the Scripture, another little thing I'll throw at you, Revelation 2 and 3 has these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. The same guy that wrote these letters, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave seven parables to his disciples in Matthew 13. And... Uh, 
It's interesting how they parallel each one of these. I'll just pick a couple to show you. A Pergamos is the one that married the church, the mustard seed. The, the, the church becomes like a tree. It's a mustard, a mustard seed grows about two feet high. If you initially, all those yellow flowers, those are mustard seeds. This one grows to a tree so large the birds lay in its branches. And the birds in, parag- in the first parable are introduced to the ministers of Satan. So that has a whole story behind it you need to dig out for yourself. And then you have Thyatira, the woman of leaven. The fourth letter and the fourth parable both have to do with the woman introducing leaven. False doctrine. How interesting. And then, of course, you've got the Church of Philadelphia, identified with the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, the Jews did not, did not recognize pearls as value. They traded them because the Gentiles liked them. The uh, pearl was non-kosher. Oysters are not kosher. But God uses this as an idiom of the church. And how interesting it is, it's the only jewel that, grow, that grows from an irritation. It grows by accretion. It's removed from its place of birth or building uh, to become an item of adornment. How interesting, what an interesting idiom of the rapture. But anyway, I'll let you look at that. You can study Matthew 13 as a little side study as we close our review of the first book of Kings. In our next session, we'll begin the second book of Kings and, uh, and continue the story of the historical books. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these examples. We do pray, Father, that we would do be more effective at taking these examples to heart, Father. How tragic it was that the southern kingdom didn't learn the lessons from the northern kingdom's disasters. We pray, Father, that we would not be guilty of the same presumption and oversight. We pray, Father, you would help us to appropriate the appropriate lessons to ourselves that we might better understand what you would have of us in these days. Help us, Father, to take you at your word. We know, Father, you mean what you say and you say what you mean. Help us to really understand that. Help us, Father, to be more fruitful stewards of your great gifts. But above all things, that we each might grow in grace the knowledge of you and of Jesus Christ in whose name we do pray and to whom we commit ourselves without any reservation. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.